Good morning once again. It's good to see you all. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 15? Now those of you who are new, we are working our way through 1 Samuel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And we come to chapter 15, which I think is one of the most important in the book. Why do I say that? Because it deals with an issue, a problem, we're all guilty of from time to time. What is it? Well, it's selective obedience. Selective obedience, the name of this message. And its consequences to our walk with and ministry for the Lord. Now, this chapter is just too big and too important to try to get through it all in one week. So we'll start it today and finish it next time. But this morning, we just want to start with the first part of the chapter, where we see God giving a command to Saul. Verse 1. Samuel also said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over my people, over Israel. Now therefore heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came out of Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all they have, and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel, and donkey. Wow. I mean, we read that and we're taken back. It doesn't sound like our loving, gracious God. I mean, honestly, uh, how could a God of love, people ask when they read this, how could a God of love order the execution of an, of an entire group of people, including the children and even the animals? Listen, before you make a definitive judgment about God's goodness and love and justice based on this passage, uh, let me give you some background. First of all, we'll look at the historical background, which God alludes to in verse 2 when he said, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. What is the Lord referring to? What exactly did the Amalekites do to the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt? Well, the incident comes out of uh, the last half of uh, Exodus 17. You don't really have to turn there. But the children of Israel had come out of Egypt under Moses, had only gotten as far as the area of Rephidim before the Amalekites attacked them. Now, to attack God's people was bad enough, but it was how and who they attacked that really made the Lord furious. We read in Deuteronomy 25, and you can turn to this one if you will. Deuteronomy 25. Keep your finger there for a second. But in Deuteronomy 25, starting in verse 17, God again is reminding them, of what the Amalekites did to them when they came out of Egypt. He said in verse 17, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear, when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. You see, guys, the Amalekites fought dirty. They didn't attack Israel head on. They came at them from behind and attacked those that were at the end of the line. You might be thinking, well, okay, but why did that make God so angry? It was because those at the back of the line were the ones that could least defend themselves, the weak, the weary, the sickly, the elderly, and the handicapped. It was those that the Amalekites attacked and killed with a vicious slaughter. So abhorrent was that in the eyes of God, he went on to say in Deuteronomy 25, verse 19, Therefore it shall be, when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around, in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance, 
that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Well, that day had finally arrived when God gave Saul the command to utterly wipe out the Amalekites. Now again, you might be thinking, okay, I understand why God would order the armies of the Amalekites wiped out. But why would God order the children, the infants, and even the animals killed as well? That's a very good question. And the answer we need to dig into now, the cultural background of the descendants of Amalek. You don't have to turn there, but if you read Genesis 36, you will see that Amalek was the son of Eliphaz, and Eliphaz was the firstborn son of Esau. When we studied chapter 36 of Genesis, we saw that Esau married uh, at least two wives that we know of from the area of Canaan. It so upset uh, his parents uh, that they asked uh, Jacob not to take, it would be uh, uh, Isaac and Rebekah, not to take a wife from among the Canaanites, but to go to the land of their forefathers and take a wife from there. Of course, Rachel eventually became his wife. But Esau and his son Eliphaz both married Canaanite women. Now you have to understand, the Canaanites were, were a people that were deeply involved in paganism, pagan demonic worship. Listen to me. That even involved their women giving themselves over to these pagan deities. We know them as demons. They thought of them as gods. But part of these pagan worship practices, this was not uncommon uh, in the ancient world. Part of it meant that certain women would be selected to basically have sexual relations with these deities. Again, we know them as demons. So as to bear the children of these quote-unquote gods. This practice eventually led to the utter contamination of the Canaanites, including and especially the Amalekites, with demonic inbreeding, very much like what happened in the days of Noah. Again, if you study Genesis 6, go online and, and uh, get that CD, or go online and listen to it, I should say. We went into this in detail, but you remember how that Genesis 6 opens up with a statement, the sons of God saw the daughters of men were fair and took for themselves all that pleased them, and they intermarried, interbred, and the offspring of these, you know, sons of God, daughters of men, were these Nephilim, the Hebrew says, or fallen ones. I believe that sons of God, bar Elohim, is a phrase that's used uh, almost exclusively in the Old Testament to refer to angels. In this case, fallen angels. Daughters of men would be a reference to human women. I believe, not everybody agrees with me, but I think I have enough New Testament uh, corroboration to say this, that sons of God, fallen angels, came down to the earth to intermarry, cohabitate with human women in an effort to contaminate the human race with demon seed to keep Messiah from being born. Sounds fanciful, doesn't it? Except Jude makes reference to it, and so does Peter. Jude says, angels that did not keep their proper habitation, but went after strange flesh, God is reserved in darkness and chains uh, for the judgment of the great day. These would be those fallen angels that tried to contaminate the human race. It says of, of Noah and his family, they were... Uh, Pure in their genealogies. The Hebrew could be translated uncontaminated. God kept one family in the face of the earth pure from demonic inbreeding and used them to repopulate the earth after the flood. That's why he wiped out uh, the whole world, really. All flesh, it said, had corrupted itself. All flesh. Not only human flesh, but animal flesh was used also in this uh, demonic inbreeding. 
And I believe that's exactly what was going on here on a smaller scale with the Canaanites. Now, we know that the Bible says before the flood there were giants on the earth. That's why God wiped them out. But even after the flood, this inbreeding continued. We know that Goliath and his brothers were of this sort. They were half demon, half human, strange characters, very tall, obviously, very powerful, six fingers in each hand, six toes in each foot, the Bible says. So they were unique, to put it mildly. But there were also others, the sons of Anak. Uh, you had all kinds of different races that had been polluted through this demonic worship. They had contaminated themselves through this demonic inbreeding. And whenever you read in the scriptures where God makes a statement or a command like this to utterly and completely wipe out a whole group of people, including you know the children, the infants, and even the animals, that tells me there has been demonic infiltration and contamination in that group that has utterly corrupted everything in that group where there is no longer any hope for them. So God had no choice left but to order the destruction of these people to keep them now. It was too late for them. But God wanted to keep the others around them pure from these demonic practices. So he had to wipe out uh, the Canaanites in general, but the Amalekites in particular. Now look, even though God ordered their execution, their annihilation, you have to remember, this came roughly 500 years after the Amalekites attacked Israel when they came out of Egypt until the time God gave Saul the command to utterly wipe them out. 500 years. That 500-year period was God's grace in operation. He was giving these people a chance to repent, to turn from these demonic practices, to get their lives right with him. They know who he was. They knew who the God of Israel was. Okay, In many regards, they were descendants of Esau and others. They knew who the God of Israel was. They were not willing, though, to submit themselves to him, to his control, to obey him. You have to understand, for the natural person, the unsaved person, this demonic worship really had a strong attraction. Why? Because these demons were often worshipped through sexual orgies. It was just a way of totally indulging their fleshly desires, and in the process sounding very spiritual, to say we're worshiping our gods. And you know what? For a lot of people that have access to that kind of sexual promiscuity, they don't want to give it up. They don't want to give it up. They don't want to listen to God and what he has said in his word and live for him. And so God gave these folks 500 years to repent. Of course, they did not. They refused. And the longer they involved themselves in these demonic practices, listen, the more corrupt and contaminated they became until they had passed the point of spiritual no return, there was no longer any hope for them. And all that remained was for God to now judge them. I like what Pastor Chuck Smith said along these lines with regard to this whole section. He said, and I quote, So may I suggest to you that the reason that God gave this command was because the Amalekites were a very vicious and cruel people. They engaged in extremely vile practices of worship to their gods, they offered up their children as sacrifices to their gods. In the course of time, they would have destroyed themselves. They were infected, you might say, with a deadly contagious disease that could corrupt mankind. Thus, God is ordering their extermination. For God is using Saul and the children of Israel as, as his instrument in bringing judgment upon them, end quote. And so, guys, that was the background behind God's command to wipe out the Amalekites, 
That then brings us to our second main point, the one we'll finish with this morning, pick up next week. God's command, first main point. The second one is Saul's compromise. Saul's compromise. We pick it up in verse 7. Now, God tells Saul to take the armies of Israel and go and attack the Amalekites, wipe them out utterly, completely. Verse 7, And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. Well, we're going to find out later. It was all the people that were there in the area he attacked, but not all of them. So he utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword, but Saul and the people uh, and the people of Israel spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, all that was good in their eyes, I should say, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them, all the good stuff. But everything despised and worthless, they utterly destroyed. Saul didn't obey God completely. He obeyed God selectively. He decided what parts of God's command he would obey and what parts he would not. Not only did he spare King Agag and all the choices of animals, later on we're going to read why he did that because he said, why waste the best of the animals? We'll just offer them to the Lord. Interesting, right? But not only did he spare Agag, the choices of the animals, he also allowed other Amalekites to remain alive. How do we know? Because later on, in 1 Samuel 27, David goes to war against the Amalekites. So there's a whole bunch of these folks Saul did not wipe out. Many years later, you remember in the book of Esther, how Haman, the Agagite, the descendant of Agag, the Amalekite, all right, that Haman tried to exterminate all the Jews in Persia on a certain date. You remember the story, how that Mordecai, the uh, uncle or the cousin of Esther, he raised her, and later on she became the queen uh, of the king of Persia. Uh, he didn't know she was a Jewess, and when he signed this hasty decree on a certain date to have all the Jews in his kingdom killed, he didn't realize his own wife was going to fall under that injunction, that law. So Mordecai goes to Esther and says, look, you need to go into the king and intercede on behalf of your people. And she says, I can't do that. I haven't even been invited into the king's presence in a month. And you know the law of the Medes and the Persians. If anyone goes into the presence of the king uninvited and he doesn't raise the golden scepter, it means their head. And Mordecai says, Esther, don't you understand that God has placed you in this position for such a time as this? This is your moment. This is why God elevated you from a place of obscurity to be the queen of the entire kingdom. But know this, if you don't stand up and speak on behalf of your people, God will bring deliverance from some other quarter, but you and your family will be destroyed. This is your moment. She said, okay, you have everyone, all the Jews in the area fast and pray for me for three days, and I'm gonna, I'll go into the king, and if I perish, I perish. And you remember the story how that God spared her life and went on to use her to save the entire Jewish population in Persia and hung Haman on his own gallows. Haman the Amalekite. All of this was the result of Saul's partial obedience. We know that partial obedience, it may sound good, but it's really total disobedience to what God has said. If Saul had utterly wiped out the Amalekites that God had commanded, Israel would not have had these future problems. 
Of course, he justified his disobedience. In verse 15, he says, For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. Oh, how easy it is to make our disobedience sound spiritual and even noble. I've heard it. I, I can't tell you how people slice and dice the truth. I've heard it so many times over the years from Christians who are not obeying God but have some spiritual spin on it, which in their minds makes them justified for disobeying God, even cast it in a spiritual light, like they're really doing the greater good by disobeying God. I don't care how you slice and dice it. Disobedience to God is always wrong. It's always wrong. Now, I'd like to spend the rest of our time this morning looking at this story from a spiritual standpoint and how it relates to all of us who are God's people. All of us. The Holy Spirit through this story wants to teach us a lot more than a history lesson. Listen to me. He wants to teach us a spiritual life lesson as well. You see in the scriptures, the Amalekites are a type of the flesh. The Amalekites are a type of the flesh. The Bible uses the word flesh in two different ways to represent two different things. First of all, it is often used to represent simply the physical body. The physical body. You remember in Genesis chapter 2, uh, verses 21 and 2. It says, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. So God did a little surgery, okay? Opened up Adam's side, took a rib, closed up his flesh. There the flesh would be a reference to his physical body. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. All right, very simple. You remember the night of Jesus' resurrection. As the disciples were hiding in the upper room somewhere in Jerusalem, afraid the Romans were coming for them next. And here comes Jesus walking right through the wall, right? They're terrified. They thought he was a ghost. And here's what he said in Luke 24, 39. Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Uh, handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bone as you see I have. Again, there the reference to flesh is his physical body. But secondly, and especially in the New Testament, uh, the word flesh is used to represent, listen, very important, our fallen sinful nature. All of us who are born into this world are descendants of Adam. The Bible says from Adam we inherited our fallen nature. That fallen nature is the part of us that wants to do its own thing. It wants to live in rebellion against God. It wants to satisfy all of its desires. All the things that stimulate the flesh, uh, sensual desires and things, or just uh, getting angry and wanting to vent our fury on others who have wronged us. All of this is the result of our fallen nature being in control at that moment or you know, over a person's life in general. Turn to Romans chapter 5. Excuse me, chapter 7. Let's pick it up in verse 5. You can read the whole chapter 6, 7, and 8. Incredible chapters on this subject. But Romans 7, verse 5, Paul says, When we were in the flesh, that's just a reference to us being unsaved, where our fallen sinful nature was dominating us. We were in our own spiritual Egypt, in the world you might say, okay? For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members. Now that's a reference to our physical body. The flesh, okay, stimulates or uses our 
physical bodies to satisfy its desires. Okay? Paul says, you know, at one time we were dominated by the flesh. It controlled us. The sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members, our physical bodies, to bear fruit to death. To do all kinds of horrible works that God had forbidden, but that our flesh wanted us to indulge ourselves in. Turn to Galatians 5. And read with me verse 17. For the flesh, again, our sinful fallen nature, lusts against the spirit. The word there is wars against, is in constant conflict with the spirit. And the spirit is in constant conflict with the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you don't always do the things you wish. The, the idea is this. Once, before we got saved, we were simply dominated by our fallen nature. There was no war going on because there was nothing alive in us that belonged to God at that point. So we were just the slaves of sin. And as Spurgeon once said, dead men don't struggle. We didn't fight against the flesh because we were dead in trespasses and sins. Paul said in Ephesians 2, we were like dead fish floating downstream with the current of the world. We didn't fight against it because we were just one-dimensional beings in the sense that we only had a fallen nature. But once we received Jesus Christ... The Spirit of God moved inside of us, and our spirit became alive. We are now born of the Spirit, right? And that's where the warfare began. The moment we were born of the Spirit, we received our new nature. Now, the old nature is warring with the new nature, the flesh against the Spirit. We get to choose, though, which one is dominant. And we'll talk about how in a moment. But there's this battle going on. See, guys? How do I know the Amalekites are a type of the flesh in Scripture? Listen, because the language God uses of them goes beyond this nomadic people that we are reading about in 1 Samuel 15. Listen to what God said in Exodus 17, verse 16. It says, The Lord has sworn, the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. That language, guys, transcends the literal Amalekites and is being used by the Holy Spirit to speak of another enemy that all of God's people battle with every single day. Again, it is the flesh. The flesh is a perpetual enemy that all Christians battle with from generation to generation. Listen to me. It is the first enemy that attacked us the day we were born again. The day we came out of Egypt, the old life of slavery to sin, as we just said, from that day, the flesh rose up to attack us. And it will continue to attack us. It will continue to be our enemy that we will fight against up until the time we take our dying breath. Listen to what it says about Amalek in Numbers 24, verse 20. It says, Amalek was first among the nations, but shall be last until he perishes. And again, I believe the writer is saying symbolically of what we're talking about. Amalek is a type of the flesh. The flesh will attack us the moment we leave Egypt, the moment we get saved and come out of the world. And we will battle with the flesh our entire life. It will, it's the first enemy we face. It will be the last enemy that we will fight until our dying breath, because when we die... Guess what? The physical body dies, and with it, the old sinful fallen nature. As believers, we'll eventually get our glorified bodies, unless we are raptured, then we'll get our glorified bodies instantaneously. We'll never see physical death. 
But at that time, the flesh or the old nature will be completely gone. As John says in 1 John 3, verse 2 or 3, he said, and then when we finally see Jesus, when we're raptured and we see him face to face, then we will be made like him as we see him as he is. We will have our glorified bodies. We will be completely pure, completely sinless. We will never fight with the flesh ever again. The flesh will be gone. will be gone. Now we all look forward to that day, right? Paul said, Lord, I just so want to be delivered from this body of death. He likened it to a dead, rotting corpse that we carry around with us from the time we get saved. We would wish that the moment we get saved, the old nature would die and leave us alone. But no, the new nature is added alongside of it, and now they're fighting with each other for dominance. But until the Lord takes us home and the flesh is destroyed once and for all, until that time, listen, God has only one command to us concerning our flesh, our sinful nature, to utterly kill it by nailing it to the cross of Christ by faith every day until the last work of the flesh is destroyed from our lives. Listen to what Paul admonished us on this subject. Again, Galatians 5. Let me read it to you the New Living Translation, verses 19 to 25. Listen to what Paul says. It goes along exactly what we're talking about. He says, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have told you before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. The Greek is anyone practicing on an ongoing basis that, that, that kind of lifestyle will not see heaven. Certainly Christians can fall into any one of those sins. That that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about people who are not redeemed, people who are still governed by the flesh. How do we know? Because that's all they live for. They're living constantly for the works of the flesh, which he outlined some of them. He could have kept going. I'm sure we could have had several hundred pages. Okay. Added, thankfully, he didn't do that. He kind of summarized, right? But he said, look, here's the works of the flesh. This is not what we as Christians are to be involved in at all. We're to crucify our flesh. Uh, do away with these things. Those who practice these things, they're not going to enter into heaven. Verse 22. But the Holy Spirit produces. Now, when the Spirit of God is in you, this is what is produced. The fruit of the Spirit in our life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There is no law against these things. Uh, these are the fruits of the Holy Spirit. He goes on to say, verse 24, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of the sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. That's what we are to be doing. Every day by faith, we are to kill the flesh. Me? No. The Spirit of God, but by faith, as you nail these things to the cross, say, God, my temper is really horrendous. Lord, I, I can't have victory over it. I need you to live your life through me and give me victory over this. So by faith, I nail it to your cross. I apply it to your death. You won the victory on the cross. And Lord, I ask by faith that you would live your life through me. One author had this to say on the subject. He said, and I quote, God declares of the flesh life. 
that you are going to have war with it through all generations. There is no truce with the flesh. There is no peaceful coexistence. There is a battle that's going on and going on every day. The flesh and the spirit are always contrary. Uh, there is a war that is going on inside of every believer, whether or not I am going to yield to the flesh or to the spirit. It is a battle over the supremacy in my life. Will I be ruled over by my flesh or by the spirit? This battle will continue as long as I am in this body, end quote. And may I say, yes, it will. But I'll give you a little secret in case you don't already know it. The flesh fights dirty, okay? The flesh and the devil using our flesh fights dirty. It's often when we're, when we're at our weakest in our walk with God, you know, barely able to keep up at the back of the line, you might say. That's when the flesh really kicks in, doesn't it? That's when it will attack us. Or when we're physically exhausted or sick uh, or weak in some way. You know, the physical affects the spiritual in a lot of ways, too. Uh, how you are in the physical will often affect your, your spiritual walk. Uh, or it could be that we're mentally beaten down at that moment where we're uh, feeling discouraged, depressed, feeling helpless and hopeless. It's then, guys, that the flesh will rise up and try to attack us, try to bring us down. I think of marriage, okay? Marriages are under attack by the devil, who is using the flesh, right? And I'll tell you this, often when marriages are struggling, that's when the flesh suddenly rises up and begins to attack from within by working within us that temptation for that coworker or neighbor or Satan joins in and uses someone on Facebook to direct that lust towards. Be very careful. There is a battle going on, and it's going on every day. And the greatest battle we face, guys, is not from without, it's from within. The flesh is a very powerful enemy. But God has promised us victory if we will do what he has told us to do. What did he tell us to do? Well, in verse 17 of Galatians 5, he talked about the flesh and the spirit warring together, fighting with each other, okay? so that we don't always do the things we want to do. But in verse 16, it gives us the, the remedy. It gives us the solution. He says, walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill or keep on doing the sinful things your flesh is trying to get you to do. Galatians 5, 16. The word for walk, walk in the Spirit. I know it's important, right? Walk in, if I walk in the Spirit, I won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. So what does it mean to walk in the spirit? Well, first of all, the word walk there is the Greek word parapeteo, and uh, that word is in the present imperative in the Greek, which the imperative is a command. Present tense is an ongoing thing. Paul is commanding us. He is commanding us that we are to constantly keep walking in the spirit every single day of our life. What does it mean to walk in the spirit? We could spend weeks on this concept, and it would be a fruitful time. But let me just give you quickly three things, just briefly, give you a working knowledge. What does it mean to walk in the Spirit? First, it means that the Holy Spirit lives in you. You're saved, okay? That's where it all starts, right? So to walk in the Spirit, first of all, means the Spirit is in you, that you're saved. You've accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior. Secondly, it means to be surrendered and obedient to what the Spirit has revealed in His Word with regard to God's will for your life. Now, here's the thing. This is why it's so important to read the scriptures, to study the scriptures, meditate on them, memorize them, because you want to know what God has said 
what things are good for you to do and be involved in and what things are not good to do or are forbidden flat out. We have to know what God's word says, and that's what it means to also walk in the spirit. It means that we are reading God's word, we understand what it says, and we are living our lives in surrendered obedience to all that he has said in his word. And number three, to walk in the spirit means to be open and sensitive to the influence and the leading of the Holy Spirit in your daily walk. I mean, be open to what the Spirit is saying to you, speaking to your heart. Uh, he's, he's telling you, don't go over there. Don't hang out with that person. Or get over here because there's somebody I want you to talk to. Or there's a work I want you to be involved with. Now, when a Christian obeys this command to walk in the Spirit, Paul promises, listen, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that you will not, and it's a double negative in the, Greek, in the Greek, very emphatic, that you will not, absolutely will not, no way, fulfill or gratify your fleshly fallen desires. Guys, the best defense is a good strong what? Offense. We don't, know, don't think about that in Chicago, but, you know, maybe with the Hawks. But uh, the idea is that, you know what? Yeah. Christians are, are, have become punching bags for the Holy Spirit, for the Holy Spirit, for the devil, for the devil, because they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. There's no offense. They're just trying to hang on. If you're not moving forward, guys, you're sliding backwards. There's no static relationship with Jesus. Either you're moving forward or you're sliding backwards. The devil knows that. You might think you're holding your own. You're not. You've got to be aggressive in your walk with the Lord. David put it this way, I will follow hard on his heels. I will follow right behind him. I'm too scared to let him get too far ahead of me. I need to hang on to him, is the idea. So Paul says, if you walk in the Spirit every single day and do the things we've talked about, you will absolutely not, no way ever, continue to gratify the, the desires of your fallen nature. Paul said in Romans 6, that this kind of day-by-day -day walking in the Spirit will render our fallen nature, listen, inoperative and will break its power over our lives. You can study Romans 6, verse 6 on the subject. Now listen, the legalist, and there's a lot of them running around in the body of Christ, the legalist has a form of spiritual dyslexia when they read Galatians 5, 16. He said, what do you mean? Well, here's how they read it. Don't fulfill the lust of the flesh, and you shall walk in the Spirit. Uh, that's exactly opposite of what Paul is saying. That's not what he is saying here. The legalist is always trying to do battle against the flesh, listen, in the strength of his flesh. Guys, let me just say this to you. I've said it before. Let me say it again. You can't use the flesh to defeat the flesh. What am I talking about? You can't use raw determination okay, raw willpower to defeat your flesh because they're working together in many ways. That's why New Year's resolutions fail miserably. Because you're, I promise myself, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to, I'm going to do it, you know, and God says, okay, well, go ahead and try it. When you're falling on your face, come and see me. You can't use the flesh to defeat the flesh. Now, Many try. In fact, the Galatians were trying. Turn to Galatians 3. Of course, the Galatians got saved through Paul's ministry. And now they were trying to do something very foolish. 
And Paul calls him on it in Galatians 3, verse 3. He says, are you so foolish? Okay. Having begun in the Spirit, you were saved by grace. Okay. Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? The NLT puts it this way. How foolish can you be? After starting your Christian lives in the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect or spiritually mature by your own human effort? The same author that we just heard from a minute ago went on to say, and I quote, God says in concerning the flesh life that we, by the Spirit, should mortify or put to death the deeds of the flesh. We are always on some kind of reformation program, though. I'm going to lose weight. I want to try to bring my flesh under control. Always hoping to conform, but it isn't a reformation that we need. It is a spiritual transformation that we need. We need to be born again, not to reform the old nature. There are always those who are looking for a little bit of good inside themselves, that they might fan the flickering flame. They are trying to bring into beauty and glory the great you that is in you. That needs to be discovered. We find a lot of denial of the corrupt human nature. The Bible teaches that man apart from God is hopelessly lost and corrupt. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who could know it? God asked to the prophet Jeremiah. We have to be born again and transformed. The old nature, well, we have to reckon it to be dead, crucified with Christ, so that the body of sin might no longer reign as king over our lives, end quote. In other words, guys, don't fight the flesh, feed the spirit. Don't fight the flesh, feed the spirit. What do I mean? Draw close to God. James said if you draw close to the Lord, he'll draw close to you. Draw close to God by getting in the word. I mean, seriously, make it a priority. Start your day with God's word. Or at lunchtime, make sure, make sure you are in the word of God every day. So you read the word. Draw close to God that way. You pray. And you stay in fellowship with other strong, spirit-filled believers. Guys, if you do that, well, listen. Your flesh won't be a real issue. It'll always be there. But you'll be so walking in the spirit that the flesh will not at any point control you. Now, one last thing and we'll close. If you don't take your flesh seriously, I mean it. If you don't take your flesh seriously and seek by the power of the Holy Spirit to crucify it every day, if you don't kill it, it will rise up and destroy you. It will do it. Saul failed to kill the Amalekites completely. And we read in 2 Samuel chapter 1, it was an Amalekite that killed Saul. If you don't kill your flesh by faith, your flesh will destroy you. I think of the tragedy of how many lives have been destroyed by the flesh how many marriages are being destroyed even as we speak how many families how many lives are being destroyed because people will not crucify their flesh they give it full reign i'm talking about believers now believers the world doesn't fight against the flesh it just goes with it i'm talking about children of god how many christians have seen their marriages destroyed their families wiped out their health physical health destroyed through cigarettes or alcohol or drugs of some kind because they absolutely refused to do what God told them to do, which was to bring their flesh to the cross every day by faith and by faith trust that Jesus Christ, who won the victory there, is going to live his life through us and give us the victory only he can live through us to give us. 
mean, if you don't bring the flesh to the cross and reckon it to be dead, it will rise up and destroy you and those things around you that you cherish. And again, I'm thinking of your marriage, your family, and so on, your walk. That's why God said, said in Romans 13, verse 14, listen to this. Instead, clothe yourself with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and don't let yourself think about ways to indulge your evil desires, to indulge your flesh. Now, I know at this point, there's always going to be somebody who's going to say, okay, so I'm not perfect. Who is? So I haven't conquered all my flesh and still have a few bad habits. Who doesn't? I mean, I've conquered most of it. What more does God want from me? How about total obedience? How about total? Let's try to think on that for a minute. What more does God want from you? How about total obedience without the excuses? Again, chapter 15, verse 9 of 1 Samuel. Saul and his men spared Agag's life and kept the best of the sheep and goats, the cattle, the fat calves, and the lambs, everything, in fact, that appealed that appealed to them, but they destroyed only what was worthless or of poor quality. You know what the real problem behind selective obedience is? Listen to me. It puts man in the place of God. It puts man in the place of God. Where people are now deciding what actions, practices, or behaviors are good, and should be allowed to continue, and what we deem is bad and should be done away with. The big one that we are facing today and that we've been really dealing with all summer is gay marriage. You know, in the Bible, God has said very clearly in both the Old and New Testaments that homosexuality is a sin, which means gay marriage is a sin, and it is to be done away with. But no, you have people in the church that have come along and said, well, no, we don't really think it's bad. We know what God has said, but we feel it's okay. And in fact, you have homosexuals who call themselves Christians and have their own churches. They're worshiping God. Certainly it's accepted by God. Certainly it's a good thing. So we should not, you know, come against it. We should not, you know, try to, to say it's wrong or evil and try to stop it because we feel it's a good thing. We are living in a culture, and we're living at the end of human history. Jesus Christ is coming back very soon. The Bible says very clearly in many places that before Jesus Christ returned, sin would escalate to a point where it would explode throughout the... You think it's bad now? Well, the church has taken in the rapture. And the moral conscience and the spirit working through the body of Christ throughout the world is removed. Sin will reach its maximum potential. Read Revelation. How wicked the world becomes. You think it's bad now? You have not seen anything. But we are working our way towards that point. Things are already getting worse and worse. I can barely watch the news anymore. It's gotten so bad. The evil, the immorality... And yet many in the church justify it. Like Saul, I know what God has said, but I really don't think that's the way to go. So I'm going to pick and choose what I think we should obey and re reject the rest. Let me just say this and I'm done. We don't get to pick and choose what's good and what's evil. We don't get to set the standard of what's right and wrong. That belongs to God and God alone. The only thing we get to do is to decide whether or not we're going to obey or not obey all that God has said. That's, our, that's what we get to decide. 
And if we decide to obey what God has said, he blesses us. And if we decide not to obey what he has said, in any way, shape, or form, there is consequences. Next week, we'll look at the consequences of Saul's actions. As God first sends Samuel to him to condemn, to condemn his selective obedience, and then pronounce the consequences for what he has now done. Very important section. I hope you come back as it affects all of us in some way, shape, or form. Father, we thank you that in your word you have given us clearly, clearly, the right and the wrong. And Lord, we're so thankful that you're the divine lawgiver. That, Lord, you have set the standard. It's not up to me to decide what I think is right and wrong. You've already decided that. It's not the Ten Suggestions, it's the Ten Commandments. Give us grace, Lord, to obey all that proceeds from your mouth. Man shall not live by bread alone, our Savior said, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We are to obey all of it, Father. Give us grace to do that. To not give you lame excuses why what we're doing, even though it violates your word, is okay in some way. Give us grace that we would, Lord, rejoice in doing everything you have said. Because our passion is to honor and glorify you with our lives. So, Father, we ask you to continue to bless and teach us and give us grace to apply that we would be lights in the darkness. And, uh, Lord, you'd be glorified through all that we do. But we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.